history. It's also called um, You Had to Be There uh, because some of what's uh, shared at these sessions is recorded and you can find it online and you can listen to it online and maybe you're listening online right now and you're hearing part of it. But then there's some really great parts that are not being posted online because we have people sharing their stories and how their stories are connected to his story. Uh, And so over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've heard a number of stories. We've heard from um, a gal named Vanessa her story's online, powerful, powerful. If you haven't heard it, please take a, take a, um, take a little while to sit down and listen to it. It's, it's literally life-changing. And then we had Bev share a couple weeks ago, which is really cool. Nelly was sharing last week, and we have another one sharing tonight. But um, I've also heard a lot of comments, because as we do a series like this, there's people who really connect with the stories that have been shared, like, that's part of my story. And so as I've talked to people, I've, I've, I've often just asked them, I'm like, okay, so are you next? And I get varied responses, things like, uh, well, I wouldn't know what to say. It was one of them. Another one was like, uh, not yet, maybe sometime. Uh, Another one said, uh, well, I don't really have a cool testimony like those people. So no, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to share. I didn't do any, like, I didn't have any crazy stuff happen in my life. My, my story's boring. So I I don't want to share it. And uh, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that, that idea of, you know, maybe, maybe sometime I'll share. It's daylight savings time, and uh, I, 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 it's just the worst. It's the worst. It is the worst day of the year. You know, Christmas the best, uh, and then a close second is the other end of daylight saving time where we get the extra hour, and then there's this one. Uh, it's like DST, which even sounds like a disease, you know? Like, oh, hi, I'm Mark. I have DST, right? Like, it's it's just brutal. But if you have kids, you know that this is kind of like the normal for like every morning of your life. You wake up feeling like it's the day after daylight savings time for the next 18 years. So I, I'm not, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not as bad. Tomorrow we'll see. We'll see. I'm glad you're here tonight. But what I realized is that it's this, this day, this one day that we become acutely aware of the fact that time is disappearing. We realize that time, it, it's, it's, we're going to lose one hour just like that. But we also realize that time you know, I have, I have one day less than I had yesterday, uh, and after today's over, I'll have one day less in life, and that time is moving on and only have so much of it. Um, there's a guy named Peter who uh, was a follower of Jesus. He, uh, he, he saw some incredible things. He wrote uh, some, some really incredible things uh, in letters to the believers in the very first century church, uh, and in his first letter to him, which we call First Peter, he was encouraging Believers, he's encouraging Jesus followers, live out your faith. Don't, don't, just, like, don't just call yourself Christian, live it out. Um, be, be eager to do things that are good, no matter what. And most people are going to honor you if you do good things. They're going to be like, wow, th- that, those people, they're quite something. But he says, even if, even if it's the opposite, where people are really hard on you for doing good things, or they don't understand, or they begin to ask questions, or even if they, they persecute you, he's like, don't be afraid of them. And he writes this, First Peter, you can follow along with me on the screen, or if you have your Bible, you can open it to First uh, Peter chapter 3, and it says this in verse 15. He says, you know, don't be afraid if you're persecuted for doing good things or for living out your faith. He says, instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. That, he's the reason you're living. Live your life completely for him. And it says, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Always be ready to explain it. And he says, do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. They might want to slam the good things you're doing, and all of a sudden they're going to realize, oh, wait a second, there's a reason why this person lives the way they live. And and so Peter said to them, hey, as followers of Jesus, 
I want you to always be ready to explain if someone were to ask you. And that means that always be ready means you're already prepared. It's, it's like you have the answer before anyone even asks. There's a, a pastor friend of mine. He is like the, the guy who's all about one-liners. It's like he must just read them and just wait for opportunities when someone says something that he'll, he'll throw this one-liner out there. And so like I've heard this one like probably at least once every time that I've eaten with him for lunch, and it's probably been like 50 times, you know, so you say something to him and you try and trick him, he'll be like, my name's Tucker, not Sucker. And his name's not Tucker, but he, somewhere he heard that, thought that was funny, and he uses it every time. Do you know anybody like that? Okay, I do. And you know, it's, he, it's like he's got these answers just ready, ready and prepared for the moment. But, the, but Peter, what Peter's saying is, you should have an answer ready if someone were to ask you these questions. If someone says, hey, where do you go every Saturday night? And for some of you, they'd be asking, where do you go every other Saturday night? Or where do you go every third Saturday night? Where, where are you going? And yeah, you might be like, Kingsway. And the next question is, what's a Kingsway? You know, why, why do you go to church? Why would you waste your Saturday night at church? What would you answer them? They might think so. What, what, maybe they'll ask you, hey, so, okay, so why are you a Christian? What would you answer them? Maybe they're going to ask you things like, why are you always so nice to me? Like, or why are you cleaning my driveway for free all the time? Or why do, you, why do you live the way that you live? Or have you always, has your life always been perfect like this? What would you tell them? Would you be ready to share your story? What if I just said right now, hey, could you come up and tell us tonight what Jesus has done in your life? We're just going to start at the back. I'm just going to pick someone random. Would you? We're going to try it. Just, no, not hands, because I'm going to do this random. We're going to see. Is everybody, anybody ready here? How about you fellas in the back? Birthday girl? Um, no, you know, maybe, hmm, we'll just see Gary. We'll pick on Gary. Gary, would you be ready if I just asked you right now to share your story? For real? Okay. I guess we'll see how this goes. You know, it's, a, it's been an amazing three weeks here. I, I hope you've been able to be here. And uh, as we heard uh, Vanessa and Bev and Nellie share their stories, I have to admit, I, I kind of had some testimony envy. Because I, I'm listening to their stories, and I'm, I'm just like, wow. Their, their life is like a blockbuster movie. Their life is like, it's just so powerful what they share. And I go like, but I think my testimony is more like a heritage minute. You guys remember those? You probably do. I bet you do remember the Heritage Minute. Let me, let me see. See if you can finish my sentence. Dr. Penfield, I smell burnt toast. Some of you, three of you remembered. So we'll revamp that for tomorrow morning. But yeah, it can still be memorable, even if it wasn't the blockbuster movie. And you know, uh, so if I'm going to share with you. I guess I, I need to share it with my, start with my childhood. And I had a pretty normal childhood. Um, I wasn't necessarily a normal child. Um, that's me. There's a, a second one here. I don't, I don't remember having that much hair ever, <laughs> but there it is. My mom had to have that changed over from a slide to, to scan it as a photo. And I, I told her, I said, mom, I don't have any pictures of myself as a kid. Do you think you could send me a few? I want to show them at church. And so she chose to without me wearing any clothes. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what we do on Saturday night, and I don't think my mom does either, but, you know, I think I probably need to start where every testimony begins with that age-old question, D, 
did you grow up in a Christian home? And I did not grow up in a Christian home, well, or, or did I? I don't know. I was exposed to church during my elementary school years, but faith was never something that I heard. I never heard the word faith. I never thought of that as a concept um, that, that would apply to me. Uh, neither, neither was the word Christian or the word religion, and it may be because my parents are, are Brits. They immigrated here about five years before I was born. Everything was just the word church. So it's, do you go to church? Are you a member of the church? Or just, are you churched, is what they would say. And I always thought that sounded rather painful, but to me, it was all tied with going to church. You had to go to church. And so uh, I lived three doors down from St. Uh, Andrew's United Church in, in a little town called Beaverton. This was a massive church with a huge steeple that you could see anywhere in town. You could always see that steeple. It was like this huge church on the top of the hill. And because it was, uh, you know, the early 80s and because it was three doors down and because it was, uh, you know, a simpler time, it was safe for my parents to send me to church without them. So my parents, every day for, for grade three till about grade eight, would send myself and my sisters up the street to the church and they would wait at home. We'd left, they were drinking coffee, we came home, they were drinking wine, but they, they, they didn't come with us. It was such a strange thing. I didn't realize that wasn't normal till years and years later. They didn't come. And so we would make our way up there, and every day on the way home, as we got home, my dad would say, how was it? And we'd say, you know, we're, we're three kids who would go, good. And that was it. That was the most in-depth conversation I ever had with either of my parents about God, was that church was good. And so, you know, for every single Sunday morning, grade three all the way through to grade eight, I'd walk up to that church. I'd sit in that strange sanctuary with all the Gothic uh, sculptures. We'd sing hymns where I never understood what they were about. They were all traditional hymns. And uh, then we would go downstairs to Sunday school. And uh, I was always the most confused kid because I didn't grow up with Bible stories. And you'll have to imagine this, that there actually was a time before Veggie Tales so if you didn't read your Bible stories, you didn't know any of this stuff. But I was eager at first, and so I'd sit in Sunday school, and they would ask, you know, who spent three days in the belly of a whale? And I'd be like, Jesus. No, no, not Jesus. Good try, though. Tell me this. Who was David's best friend? Jesus. Some of you are like, well, maybe, I don't know. But uh, no, that wasn't right either. And then we get to the questions like, you know, um, who told Eve to eat that apple? Yeah, <laughs> I got your Sunday school detention. But, I, you know, it was something I did because I was supposed to do. But at the end of grade eight, my parents said to me, now you're a, well, I don't think they call me a man, but they said, now you're old enough to decide for yourself if you want to do this church thing. And I, I didn't have to think very hard about it. I, uh, that was it for me. Uh, but my next interaction with faith kind of came in my senior year of high school when a young lady caught my eye. All of you looking at Candace and smiling, you're not helping me. It wasn't Candace. I met her in college, but um, I, met the, I, I, wanted to go, I wanted to get to know this girl, and she, uh, I thought that was Candace leaving for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Uh, <laughs> but if she was church, I was going to be church. And so the next thing you know, I'm, a, I'm attending a small Baptist church, and where I was taught every single week, it's not about church attendance, but please come back. Uh, it's about a relationship with God. And I could understand that in a very simplified idea that, you know, it wasn't just about being there. It was about what you were doing there. But I had a real hard time understanding that. I had a hard time understanding how the God that created everything, 
the God who was perfect, the God who didn't make mistakes, would be proud of me because I was good at making mistakes. I wasn't very good at this uh, following the rules of the Bible thing. But the thing, the thing that kind of struck me was everybody there was trying, so I was going to try too. And so I was going to become the best Bible rule follower that I could be. And so I didn't really attempt to develop a relationship with God. I attempted to do and say the right things when I was in church. And so it's a weird spot because I didn't doubt that there was a God. I didn't doubt that what the Bible said was true. I just couldn't really get over this idea that God cared about me, that he knew me, he cared about me, and I was important to him. And so I just figured, you know what, I can earn this. I can, I can do what everybody else is doing. I can follow along fairly well. So that's what I, I made a commitment. And as strange as this sounds, four months after I made that commitment, I went to Bible college. And that was an eye-opener for me. But what I learned at Bible college was I could get really good at being churched. Is there something behind me? You're all looking over my head. Okay. <laughs> it's freaking me out. So uh, that, that's what I would learn. I would learn how to be a good rule follower, and Bible college seemed the place for that. And so I went to Emmanuel Bible College for a year, and I learned how to be a good rule follower. And now Candace, who was there, and Bev, who were there, I promise you what they're thinking right now is he was not a good rule follower. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean by that. I did have some, some troubles in Bible college, but I learned how to play the game. You know, I, I, I learned when you, when you do this and not to do that and never say that, but you should probably say this, nod your head, put up your hand during worship or not. If nobody else is, you shouldn't. I learned how to play the game and I learned how to look like I belonged. And I was 100% dedicated to this church thing. I just wasn't the least bit dedicated to knowing God because I felt at some level, what would God want for me? What, what could I offer God? And so I just went through those kind of, uh, those motions and I was, I was, it was more like a contractual obligation. I'd signed up for this. So I better take it seriously and I better make sure I do my best. And uh, Blaise Pascal, the math guy, I don't know what he did with math, but he's a math guy. He once said, the knowledge of God is very far from the love of him. I actually don't agree with that, but what I would say is that the knowledge of God is very different than the love of him, and I did not have a love relationship with God. I had this contractual obligation. And so the end of my first year of Bible college, after a shockingly short meeting with the dean, it was decided maybe Bible college wasn't the best place for me to uh, hone my gifts, and so I left Bible college. I didn't get kicked out. The conversation didn't go that far. I kind of quit before he kicked me out. So, um, but, but that was that. I, I left my time there. And really, the next 18 years, I have nothing to report. I got married, started a family, got a job, went to teacher's college, all that sort of stuff. But spiritually, I just was playing the game. I learned, I learned how to do the things I was supposed to do. And so 18 years later, um, you know what? You, you might be dedicated to following rules for the sake of following rules, but after... 18 years, the shine kind of comes off. You've kind of, you kind of don't have that energy anymore. You kind of don't have any interest in following the rules when there's no relationship attached to those rules. And so 18 years later, I'm married. I have uh, I've got a couple kids. I have a good, secure job. Um, you know, my position in life is, is fairly good. Um, I'm, I'm active in the church. I teach adult Bibles, uh, Bible study. Um, I, I teach in the kids' ministry. Um, but I'm bored. I'm bored of the church, and I'm bored with my wife. I'm bored with my kids. I'm bored with my life. 
And so I decide that basically I'm just going to put in a few more years, the kids get a bit older, and I'm going to bail on all of it. I'm going to divorce Candace. I'm going to say goodbye to the kids. I'm going to move on, and I'm just going to divorce myself from church as much as I can. Because it was, it was all me, all me putting an effort. God wasn't doing anything. He wasn't helping me out at all. And so I just, I, I made these plans, and I was, I was so self-obsessed. I spent all of my time worrying about my image and my credentials at work and at church. You know, I placed more value on what was going on at, at, at school with, uh, with my job than I did with uh, what was going on with my family or with God. Uh, I'd made, uh, you know, I would hide from my wife at work. I'd work extra long hours. I didn't need to work because it was more important to me that people at work respect the job I was doing. Um, you know, I was, I was hurtful and unkind to Candace daily because she doesn't meet the standard that I had for her. That was just, it wasn't fact-based at all. It was my idea of what she should be, and she didn't meet that standard. So I just was unkind to her every single day. I used my sense of humor to tear people down, to belittle them, and I was as self-centered, I think, as a person could be. I was, uh, there's a reason I think that's true. There's a reason why I think I had maxed out and I was the most self-centered person you can be, and that's because in 2010, after 17 years of marriage, after having kind of a miserable decade with me, Candace had finally had enough, and she told me she wanted a divorce. And my response was that I was infuriated. I wanted a divorce too, but I wanted to say it. I was offended that she would ask me because I wanted to ask her for a divorce. And so I, I lost my mind and I said, this is ridiculous, how can you divorce me? I'm divorcing you. I know that sounds really mature, uh, but I moved out. I left uh, at her request, but it was, like I say, it wasn't an argument. Um, but this became, this was the sum total of my life. The sin in my life had free range in me. And though this is exactly where I deserve to be, that wasn't where God wanted to leave me. And after decades of God allowing me to do things my way, he intervened. And so I, I began by saying, then God. And I love those two words. Whenever you read in the Bible where it says, then God, sometimes it says, now God or but God. But when you see that, you should get excited because something amazing is about to happen. So I say, that, I think of, it, think of the story of Jonah. Jonah decides he's going to rebel from God. He's going to do things his own way. He's going to leave God in his tracks. He doesn't need him anymore. And it says, then God sent a storm. But then we know that it also says a verse later, then God sent a great fish. And this is where I have my then God moment. When God introduced me to a retired pastor named Don, who I'd never met before, and over a cup of coffee to Tim Hortons, I, for some reason, shared my story with him. I don't know why. That's, that's not who I am. I don't talk to anybody unless I have to, especially back then. And uh, I don't know what made me start talking to Don at this Tim Hortons, but I shared my story with him. And uh, as I finished, he put his coffee mug down, and he says, he says, no, no, I understand. You deserve a perfect marriage. And then he just kind of looked down and shook his head. He was angry. I didn't even know this guy. He didn't know my wife, my kids, my church. He didn't know anything besides what I had just told him. He was angry because he knew something that I didn't. He knew how God felt about me. That although I had been pushing God away for years and years, he knew exactly what was going on. And uh, again, I, I still can't, without, without having God as, as the explanation, I still can't figure out why I agreed to meet with him a week later. And we started meeting every week. 
and he began to mentor me, and I had assumed that uh, he'd talk about my marriage, because that's what I told him. I said I had a terrible marriage and a terrible wife and a terrible life and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but he, uh, he didn't want to talk about my marriage. He said very early on in that, in that uh, first meeting that we had at his house, he said, listen to me, your marriage is not the problem. You, Gary, are the problem. And he spent a lot of time investing in me over the next few months. Uh, but he knew something that I didn't know at the time, but I, I believe it's totally true, that the most arrogant, the most self-righteous, the most domineering people in, in their relationships with others are the people who lack self-esteem the most themselves. And so he realized that for me to understand how God saw me, he had to go back to the very beginning. And so that's what he did. And he started to share with me the story of the prodigal son. And again, I've been in church for 20-odd years now. I'd heard that story plenty of times. I could, I could recite for him the, the passages. I could explain just as well as he could what the point of the story was. But I'd never personalized it. I'd never put myself in that story. And so that's what I thought we were doing. I thought, I guess we're going to talk about that self-righteous brother or maybe that rebellious brother. And he says, no, I don't want to talk about those guys. I just want to talk about the quality of that loving father. And so if you don't know the story, I, I can probably summarize it in a minute here. There's the, the dad with two boys. And uh, after uh, the younger one decides, you know what, he's had enough of the old man. And he says to his dad, listen, dad, I hate you, but I love your money. So give me some. And this dad being like any dad says, absolutely, and gives him tons of money. Because we, one thing we know, it's been a rule since before Jesus was even born, teenagers have no money, and they're going to have to get it from their parents. So he gives them the money, and he's, he's rich by anyone's standards. And he goes off, and he lives uh, sowing his wild oats for, for a, I believe it's a year, maybe more, um, and, until he runs out of money. And when he runs out of money, he has that sudden concept that anybody who has kids going away to school has had that feeling before. It's like, I'm out of money. i got to talk to my dad. And so he says, you know what? I don't deserve to go home. I don't deserve for my dad to accept me home to help me out. He says, maybe my dad will let me like work in the back field, but I'm so desperate I'm going to head home. And it says when, it was, when he was still a long way off, the dad saw him and started running down the laneway towards his son. Now, I checked about a dozen different translations. Every single one says the word ran. I have trouble picturing that. Because here's what I think. If, I see, if I'm that kid and I see my dad booking it down the driveway towards me, I'm thinking he's going to hurt me. Right? Think about what I've done to this dad. I, I, I think the run, absolutely he was running, but I think there was running and, and cheering and maybe even skipping as he, as he ran down that driveway because somehow that kid knew that his dad didn't mean him any harm. His dad had a different plan. And so as, as he gets reunited with his father, it says, the Bible says it's, he was filled with love and compassion. And that's because he had missed him so much that he was unwilling to wait that extra minute or two it would take for his son to walk up by himself. He had missed him so much that he wanted to be with him even sooner. And this is when I start to understand the relationship I have with my heavenly father. I have a great relationship with my dad, by the way. It's just not a, it's just not a deep relationship. But this is when I first started to understand what it meant to be loved by the God of heaven. And so, you know, I'm so far um, inside of myself at that point where I'm, I'm unable to kind of see it until it's shown to me so clearly. And I, I just believe that, that God lifted a veil on me that day that I suddenly 
you know, as I'm kind of blubbering away in Pastor Don's office, I just kind of come to this realization that that's how God feels about me. He can't stand to wait another minute to be reunited with me. And so, um, you know, as he, as he taught me, he showed me that, you know, I need to take the focus off of me, that pitiful character dragging himself up the driveway, and I need to put it on him, that glorious, overjoyed father, because once you see yourself the way God sees you, you'll be forever changed. Now, I'd probably heard that said a dozen times in church, but it was only at this point that I was able to see myself as that unworthy kid, dragging myself up the dra- driveway as I drag everybody around me down. And I'd... I'd um, I remember Don made me memorize dozens and dozens of, of verses. He would make me, every week he'd send me home with one. He would say things like this to me. He would say, there's no condemnation for you who belong to Jesus Christ. And that is true for me, but it's equally true for Bob. And it says, if he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, he can cleanse us. And that's true for me. And it's just as true for Logan. That God loves you, and he has actually chosen you. That God has set you aside as his own people, and he sees you as a special treasure. That we're God's masterpiece. That, God, that we're the best example of what God can do. That we're his masterpiece. He can do no better. And that's true for me, and it's true for you. Like the father of his children, he's tender and compassionate to them. He said that about me, and he said that about you. And as I learned and I memorized all these verses, I started to understand that this image of God that I had as an angry, wrathful God was not true. But even more than that, this image I had of God as being, some, as being disappointed and frustrated and regretful that he ever offered the gift of salvation to me was equally untrue. That's not how God sees me. And no matter how much I tried to uh, believe that, as I met with Don and as Don opened my eyes, and again, as that veil was lifted from me, I just suddenly realized that's not who God made me to be. And so uh, three months after I moved out, I moved back home. I, I, I was different. I was different in a number of ways, but I realized I can't really explain to you how different I was because... It's, I'm talking about myself, so I wonder if Candace would come up as you applaud for her uh, journey to the front. Yeah, here, just. <laughs> Sorry. So Gary and I uh, didn't really talk much that summer. Um, neither of us was interested in working on our marriage. Um, we basically both thought it was over. We'd given up. But by the time the summer had ended, um, I knew that God had done a great work in Gary. Uh, he came home changed. He wasn't the same man he was when I married him and had known for 17 years. He was full of love and compassion. And there was an attentiveness and an interest in doing things with myself and our girls. And that wasn't there when he left. While he was away, he created some devotionals each week to sh- for me to share with our girls. This was a window into what God was uh, teaching Gary 
and how Gary was learning and growing in the Lord. Each week as we received these devotionals um, from him, I could see that he was falling in love with Jesus. His whole outlook was changing. Jesus was the focus, not Gary. So as the summer drew to a close, we started talking about our life together. And I realized that I now had a husband and that he knew who he was in Christ. Sorry, I, I probably should have done that. Thank you. Um, you know, Andy Stanley in the Starting Point series said this, God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. And it's just, just this feeling that I had, this, this idea that he was disappointed with me, that he was frustrated with me, that he regretted ever getting to know me in the first place, was replaced, because those words aren't in God's vocabulary. They were replaced with an understanding of what God means when he said that I am his masterpiece. You know what a masterpiece is? It's not just something that's really good. It, it means it's, it's the best example of what someone can do. And so when we say the Mona Lisa is a masterpiece, that's the best thing that, I probably should research this, Leonardo, yeah, <laughs> whoops, uh, can do. I'm off script, anything could happen. Uh, <laughs> what, but when you think of that, that's the best he can do. And so and, and you're going to be put in situations in your lives where God says, you know what, that's the best person I can put in that situation to speak to others, to share those stories. And so um, I want you to just leave with that tonight, that I should say you're not dismissed. I'm, su- I'm assuming Mark's coming back, but, uh, but just that idea that you're a masterpiece, that you are the best example of what God can do, and he loves you. Thank you. I don't know if I even have to come back. That's uh, pretty pretty amazing. Um, I always said if Gary had a church, I'd go to it. So if you start a church, Gary, I'll be there. But just to see the power of God at work in a life. Um, and it's crazy when uh, we didn't really talk much about what he was sharing or, or what uh, tonight would look like. We probably should have, but... Uh, I saw his notes on his title, and it's the same as mine, and I was like, just crazy. But the reason that we've had all of these people sharing their stories is because the question is this, what about you, and what about me? Are you prepared to share your story? Are you prepared to tell anyone who will listen what Christ has done in you? You know, why did Peter write, hey, be prepared, be all, be, have it planned in advance? You know, Gary had, a plan, he had paper, he had notes. He, he spent some time putting this together. Why do we care that you are prepared to share your story? Here's why. Just by show of hands, how many of you are here tonight because someone invited you to come to church? Not, not, maybe not tonight, but the very first time you ever showed up, it was because someone asked you to go. That's a lot of hands. How many of you are a follower of Jesus because someone told you about how to become a follower of Jesus? Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of hands. It's why it's because someone said something. So I just want to give you real quick thoughts on how you can prepare for your story. And here they, here they are. Number one is this. Your story is for his glory. Rhymes didn't make it up. It's cool, though. Your story is for his glory. Um, when we went to the Workers' Worship Retreat, we saw this um, gal named Ann, Ann Byler. 
Uh, and if you, if you go on Right Now Media, this will be the very first video that shows up is this woman, Ann Byler. Uh, and if you don't have Right Now Media, just send me an email saying, I want Right Now Media. We pay for it, but you can have it for free. And if you watch her story, it's 15 minutes long. She had some horrible things happen in her life uh, at a young age and as, a, as newly married. She then, as a result, made some really regrettable decisions in her life. And she begins to tell her story of just how devastating those two things were in her life. But she wasn't just telling her story. It wasn't just like, here's my story. Her story is for God's glory. And so somewhere in there, there's this spot where Christ turns her story around. And she uh, had been in great need of uh, marriage counseling. Her marriage barely survived. And yet, I'll, I'll let you watch the video to see what happens. But she started making pretzels. And as a result of making pretzels, she would sell the pretzels and she would give the money to uh, marriage counselors so that people who needed marriage counseling but couldn't afford it could have it for free. And people started buying her pretzels like crazy. She franchised this thing. They're all over the place. And thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars come in every year to give people free marriage counseling. So marriages would be saved, uh, even though, though hers was almost lost. Just saying, you know what, my story might have been ugly, but there's a... My story can be for his glory. And so the thing about you being prepared to tell your story, it's not just telling your story of like all the dirty secrets in your past, which some people feel like everyone wants to know. That's not what your story is about. Your story is for his glory. And the second thing is this, that your story should have something of what Christ has done in your life. What has Christ done in your life? Listen close to this one. There's a guy named, we'll call him Little Johnny. He was taught to memorize scripture he was also taught to memorize the Reformed Catechism and hymns at the age of six. Little guy going through all of that. By the age of seven, though, his mother died, and he was taken on. Uh, his father took him to live with him, and he happened to be a sea captain, and so he began spending his life in boarding schools or at sea. He, he tried to remain faithful to what his mom had taught him. When he, was a, when he was young and through his teen years, he kept trying to remember these scriptures and things, but time and time again, he was drawn away. As he got to his late teens, the lure of wealth caused him to join in the lucrative business that was all over the place at that time, which was slave trading. This was in the 1800s, and during one of his voyages on a slave ship, he encountered a storm that he did not think they would survive uh, through, and he called out to God in that moment. And they did survive that storm, and something happened to him in that moment. His life began to change, but it began to change slowly. He was still a slave trader for a while. Actually, for four years, he was still calling out to God, praying to God, talking to God, reading the Bible, and human trafficking for four years. After he stopped realizing, he realized it was wrong, he stopped slave trading, and then he began to take a stand against it. He began to speak with people about what Christ had done in his life, lots and lots and lots of people. Finally, he was speaking just like as a, as a pastor uh, for crowds of people. He teamed up with a guy named William Wilberforce to campaign against the slave trade and try and abolish slavery completely. This man left us with a number of songs that spoke of what Christ had done, but none of them are as well-known as this one. It's called Faith's Review and Expectation. You know it? Yeah, you do. The guy's name's John Newton, and the song later on was called Amazing Grace. You didn't know it by that term, but he wrote about Amazing Grace, and he wrote these words, I once was lost, but now I'm... I once was blind, but... I guess you can read it, right? But you probably knew it. You probably didn't have to, to read it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I, I once was blind, but, but now I see. My question is, what about you? Do you have a I once was in my life? 
Because if your story doesn't have a, I once was, but Christ, then has Christ actually affected your life? Because my greatest fear is that people would sit in churches year after year after year and never realize that it was about Christ. That we would raise great rule followers, people who knew the right things to say, like Gary's story shares, that we wouldn't realize, that people may not realize that it was about Christ affecting our lives in a very, very real way. I have this question, is your faith about location or communication? I did make that up because it rhymes. Is it about location or communication? Why do I say that? Communication is daily relationship, daily communication relationship with someone. You know, where it's like, it doesn't matter if I ended up in church on a Sunday that, that I'm talking to God every day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, God, you affect my life in, in my decisions, the way I treat people, the way I do marriage, the way I do life. Communication. Location says, I'm a Christian because I go to church on Sunday. Location is believing that if you go to McDonald's enough, you're going to turn into a Big Mac. And that only happens if your name is Mac. Or if you sit in Tim Hortons, you're not going to turn into a Timbit, but we think that maybe if we're in church enough, then, then maybe we're a Christian. For those of you who've been around church long enough, you've, those aren't new. But do you have a, I, I once was. I once was, fill in the blank, and then by Christ, then God. Do you have that in your story? And I'm asking that sincerely. Would you ask yourself that question? Because if I have to tell you mine, I would say this. I I once was pretty self-righteous. I once thought I was a good little boy because I didn't drink, I didn't didn't, uh, smoke, I didn't do drugs, and I didn't date no girls who did those things. That was my claim to fame. But then I didn't, what I realized is that I, I once was afraid I once was so afraid of what everyone thought of me that I wouldn't talk to anybody. Uh, I, I was so afraid that, uh, that life didn't seem worth living. That at a time in my teen years, I, I was suicidal. But Christ came into my life and changed me in a profound way. I, I, I once was addicted to pornography. I once was so ashamed of the ugly person I was inside. But Christ has done some incredible things in my life. In the areas of freedom. I I once was broken in a sin-filled person. Just all about me and dead to Christ. Felt unlovable. But but Christ has changed me in a very real way. Do you have that? I I once was and, and fill in the blank. And maybe for you, BC doesn't stand for but Christ. It's like but church. It's bigger than that. Your story is for his glory, and your story is about what Christ has done in your life. Maybe for you, you think you don't have all the answers. Third thought is this. You don't have to have all the answers. John chapter 9 tells a phenomenal story. This man named John who traveled around with Jesus, witnessed this event, and he wrote about it for us. I just want to read, I want to just read this story because I, I don't even know that I can tell it any better than this. It says this. As Jesus was walking along, John chapter 9, verse 1, he saw a man who had been blind from birth, Rabbi or teacher, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? They thought it was all like, if you sin, then, then, then you're cursed. Jesus said, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night's coming and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I'm the light of the world. He said, it's not, this is not about sin. This is about watch what God's going to do. It says, then he spit on the ground, he made mud with saliva, he spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. 
And then he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and he washed and he came back seeing. Man, miraculous. Well, of course, when somebody who's been blind since birth is now seeing, his neighbors and others who knew him as the blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the guy who used to sit and beg? Some said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's him. And others said, no, 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 he just looks like him, but can't be him. He's seeing. But the beggar kept saying, no, no, it's me. Yes, I'm the one. I'm the same one. And they asked, who healed you? What happened? And he told them, verse 11, the man they called Jesus made mud. He spread it on my eyes, and he told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. He's telling his story to them. He's like, so I went, now I see. And they said in verse 12, where is he now? He's like, I don't know. See, those words are okay to have in your story. When people are like, okay, well, you know, where's Jesus now? Like, what's I don't know, but he carries on in verse 13. So they took this man who had been blind to the Pharisees, to the leaders, because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. That's a no-no. Sabbath's day of rest, and here's Jesus healing people. And so verse 15, the Pharisees asked the man about it. So he told them, listen, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed it, and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, he's not from God, for he's working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep division of opinion among them. This is all happening on the same day. Then 17, the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man um, who healed you? And the man replied, well, I think he must be a prophet. I don't know all the answers, but, but I, I think that he's, he's pretty important. He, he's, he's pretty amazing. Verse 18, the Jewish leader still refused to believe this man was the same one who had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents and they asked them, is this your son? Yep. Was he born blind? Yep. If, now, if so, how can he now see? And his parents replied, we know this is our son. We know he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. You ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said he's old enough. Ask him. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Verse 25. What does he say? I don't know. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I do know this. I was blind. I once was blind. But now I see. I don't know all the things, but I know what he's done for me. And then in verse 26, but what did he do? They asked him, how did he heal you? I love this. Verse 27, he's like, look, the man said, I told you once. Didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? And he actually had told them more than once. He says, do you want to become his disciples too? They didn't take him up on his offer, but many people did. And many people have since because of the fact of what Jesus had done for him. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't know, he didn't know all of like the, the doctrines or anything like that, but what did he know? He said, I know what Jesus did for me. Do you know what Jesus has done for you? When you see this cross, when we think about Easter, do, do you know that Jesus did this for you? That he hung on a cross to pay for your sin? What does that make you think? What does that make you feel? Is it just like, yeah, yeah, I know that. That's what I heard in Sunday school. Or does it grip you and realize, yeah, I once was deserving of death. I once was broken, ugly, separated from God. I once was, but thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Now, I'm not that person anymore. My trust is in him, not in my 
good works. What has Christ done for you? Can you simply tell others what he's done for you so far? And the last thing is this. Your story's not finished yet. For those of you who are like, I'm not sure I can share my story because I don't have the whole thing together yet. You know, I, I don't have pictures in a slideshow or the, whatever. Guess what? Your story's not finished yet. Peter challenged all of the people, be prepared to share your story. Give, give an answer when people ask you about the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and do it with respect. Don't go slam it down people's throats. Don't go, you know, like trying to convert people. That's, that's not the job. All it is is to simply say, this is what he's done for me. And what he's done for me, he can do for you. Why did he challenge him with that? Because the story's not finished yet. And for some, maybe you worry about that. You worry about the story and like, well, maybe, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Natasha Bedingfield wrote this, this song. Maybe you know it. You'll hear the, hear the music in your ears. Is No one else can feel it for, for you. Only you can let it in. No one else, no one else can speak the words uh, on your lips. Treat yourself in what's unspoken. Live your life with arms wide open. Today's where your book begins. The rest is still unwritten. What Christ has done in you, that opportunity to, to keep stepping forward to see what he may do in you, you don't have to wait for all of that to share what he's already done in your life. Like Tim Tebow, he says this, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds my future. He's quoting someone else, but it's awesome. I don't know. I don't know what's in my future. You know, I'm not telling you that, that you should, you know, believe in Christ because my life is so awesome right now. Tomorrow it may not be, but I still say that I know who holds my future and, and you can know him too. Maybe you have the fear of, you know what, what if I, what if I get it wrong? What if, what, if, what, if I, what, if I, what if I fail? What if I tell them this and then tomorrow I mess up and they hold it against me and I end up having to wear that word hypocrite? Band I used to, well, I still love listening to, DC Talk, not together anymore, but they wrote this song called What If I Stumble? What if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I lose my step and I make fools of us all? Will the love continue when my walk becomes a crawl? What if I stumble? What if I fall? You know, and for some, that's the reason why you don't share your story, because you're just, you're scared to, to share. Can I tell you this? Those are quotes from some great people, but there's none greater than this one, and it's a man named Paul. Paul, who was completely against Jesus' followers. Paul was just doing anything to kill the followers of Jesus until he met the Jesus that they followed. And he shares his amazing story three times. You can read it in Acts. We don't have time tonight, but go to Acts chapter 9, and then read it again in 22. Read it in 26. You see that he planned what he would share. He shared parts of it with, with early uh, Jesus followers. He wrote it in letters, and he wrote one to the, this group in Philippi, which is in Greece. It was good news for them. It's great news for us. And I just want to leave you with the, this last thought tonight. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes this. He's like, you know what? As far as your story goes, I'm certain that God, who began... The good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day of when Christ returns. So I got a question for you. Maybe three. Who began the good work in you? Yeah. God's the one who began the good work in you. There was no good in us until he came in, until Christ began to work in us. It says, but God began it. Who's going to continue the working on you? And who's going to finish it? God, it's his story. It's his story. If we would keep our eyes on him, our story will be for his glory. God is not done with me yet. God is not done with you yet. And everyone has a story. 
But if you're a Jesus follower, you have a life-changing story that the world needs to hear, that someone around you needs to hear, because who's on the other end of your story that may be a follower of Jesus as a result of you sharing what Christ has done for you? So our question tonight is not, will you go out and share your story? That's not the question. The challenge tonight is, will you prepare so that you can share your story the next time that you're asked? You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to know what Christ has done for you. And if he hasn't, if you're not aware of that, maybe tonight's the night you just say, listen, God, I've been doing the religious rules thing, but I don't want that anymore. I want relationship with you. Make that happen in my life. Know that he's not finished with you yet. And ultimately, your story can be for his glory. Will you choose to do that? It may take some work to sit down and say, okay, God, where did I see you working in my life? But it'd be life-changing for you, life-changing for others. That Just like that puzzle piece, you might help others connect with our amazing, amazing Savior, Jesus Christ. Can we pray? Father, thanks for tonight. Thank you for the stories. Thank you for what you've done in and through Gary's life and Candace's life. Thank you for what you've done in my life and in so many people's lives here. You're amazing. You took broken brokenness and turned it into something for your glory. And we're thankful for that tonight. Father, I pray as we go from this place, as we just sit down and we spend some time just thinking about what you've done in us, may it just bring back that joy of our salvation that we can't help but share that with those around us. That as we uh, live our lives with you and for you, that others might see and wonder. God, when they ask, may we just be ready to tell them about how amazing you are and how much you love them. That you're like that father running down the road towards each and every one of them. Lord, may this week, may our stories be for your glory. We love you. Thank you for loving us. It's in your name I pray. Amen.